Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you'll know uh, that it is our normal practice to work through books of the Bible line by line, and uh, uh, and that has been really our joy. We've been through a number of books here since I've been uh, back in uh, February of 2019. However, it has been on my heart to study with you the life and ministry of our King and uh, Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And rather than just go through one gospel, it has been my desire and also affirmed by our elders uh, for us to harmonize and teach through the gospels as a whole. In doing this, we'll be able to pull together the whole ministry of Christ in a chronological way, or at least the best of our ability. Uh, some of those things are a little bit def- difficult to place, but uh, we'll work pretty hard on that and and trust a number of people who have worked very hard on it. In God's providence, uh, this December 25th, the day the church has traditionally celebrated the birth of Christ, happens to land on a Sunday, and therefore we thought it would be wonderful to begin the harmonizing of Christ's life on that day. But before we get there, uh, we're going to spend the next six months in the Old Testament in a series which I have titled, Anticipating the King. Quite obviously, we will not cover the Old Testament in much detail at all, but rather we will be kind of skipping along the mountaintops of that which God has revealed to us about the anticipation and coming of a king. Therefore, it is the purpose of our series titled Anticipating the King to show how our Bibles foresee the coming of a king who deals in righteousness and in justice. Today is a little bit different in that we don't need a lot of anticipation. We're going to start in the beginning. This series for the next six or seven messages will be titled Beginnings, uh, but we don't need to anticipate a king in chapter one and two of Genesis because the king is with the people, uh, Adam and Eve. But um, uh, we're excited to get to that spot. It won't be long that we'll be in the series, Anticipating a King. In preparation for the series, Troy, the elders, and I made note of the fact that many Christians abandon their Old Testaments and spend the lion's share of their time in the New. Uh, There are many reasons for this, but the most egregious come from a kind of thinking that advocates that the New Testament replaced or did away with the Old, therefore making the Old Testament obsolete. If one accepts this kind of thinking, its result is that it opens nothing less than a massive floodgate of confusion as to understanding what is going on with Christ's coming. It causes an uncontrollable number of uh, interpretive methods, which ultimately creates an excess of differing analysis, which further discourage the saints from studying their Old Testaments. This misunderstandings like this mixed with other ingredients such as science, politics, culture, traditions like Catholic and Reformed theology, and in the West at least, a large measure of ignorance resulting from countless hours being distracted by video games, sports, attaining an education, and planning retirement investments that has led us to mindlessly abandon the truths of creation and the subsequent understanding of the Old and the New Testament. Add to those issues school systems that continue to teach our children that their origin was from a series of evolving DNA structures 
a theory that was unraveled decades ago when we learned that DNA cannot and therefore does not evolve. It only knows how to repair what it used to be and reproduce according to its kind. Yet our schools fill our kids, their minds, and their hearts with science that is no more science than a puff of wind. The book called The Origin of Species, published in 1859, without a doubt, was meant to be in direct conflict and, uh, with the ancient book that did, in fact, record the origin of species, our Bibles. Well, I want to announce to you that regardless of all the problems just mentioned, we as the teaching elders of Capital City Church maintain that the Bible says what it means, and it means what it says. Not at all, and we would not at all advocate for some kind of ignorant reading of the Bible, like we don't understand that there are different genres that appear in the Bible. There are different kinds of writing, different things that we must grasp a hold of as we read through in order to get a right interpretation. But what I am simply saying is anyone should be able to go to their text and read it and come away and know what God has said. Amen? And in doing this, we look at Genesis and we read it and its message is simple. One of my seminary professors, Dr. William Coberly, um, this was some years ago, and I was studying late night in the library, and I was talking to him about how the, some of the, the newest quote-unquote scholarship on Genesis is that it's, it's myth, and it's, we need to understand it as myth, and it's historical myth, and uh, that is the genre. And so for us to go back to Genesis and to read it as if it was some kind of narrative or history that is, that's today's scholarship, it would, they would say, is ridiculous. Dr. Coberly is one of the most well-learned individuals that I know. His ability to remember and maintain uh, resources and references, he often produces and, and speaks at the Evangelical Theological Society each year. said the foremost secular Jew, the foremost secular Jew, Jew in ancient Hebrew says there is no more clear way than a writer of ancient Hebrew could write historical narrative than to write what we see in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. That's amazing, isn't it? A guy who has no skin in the game. He's a secular, he's a Jew, but he's a scholar on ancient Hebrew is saying, I'm telling you this, there is no clearer way to write narrative than what is written in the starting chapters of Genesis. Genesis starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we believe it. We believe that on the first 24-hour day, God created light, and it was good, Genesis 1, 2 through 5. We believe that In the second 24-hour day, God created the atmosphere, often translated as expanse or firmament, and it was good, Genesis 1, 6 through 8. In the third 24-hour day, God separated the land from the sea and created vegetation, and it was good, Genesis 1, 9 through 13. In the fourth 24-hour day, God created the sun, moon, and stars to separate the light from the darkness, and it was good, 
Genesis 1, 14 through 18. In the fifth 24-hour day, God created the birds of the air and the fish of the seas, blessed and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, and it was good. Genesis 1, 19 through 23. Then, starting in verse 25, the sixth 24-hour day records that God created all of the land animals. And on that sixth day, in verse 26, the real origin of man is recorded. Moses writes in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and says, pay attention to the repeated words and thoughts here. Then God said, I should have it up here on the screen for you. I should. Well, I shouldn't have it, but Matthew should have it up on the screen for you. He does. Thank you, Matthew. Then God said, let us make man, make, pay attention there, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Friends, it is not difficult to see why that scholar, that Hebrew scholar would turn and say there's no clearer way to describe in Hebrew how something is created than that. Now he doesn't believe it. We do, amen? But he is simply stating that if it be true, and it is, in God's opinion, we did not evolve but were created by him, and we were to subdue and rule over the earth. Love, it is the purpose of our series titled Anticipating a King to show how our Bibles foresee the coming of a creator king who cohabitates, pay attention to that word, who cohabitates with the saints to deal in righteousness and justice. Beloved, as we will see today, the king of all creation, God crowned mankind with glory to rule over the realm of earth. There are many things to be learned from this short passage, and honest to goodness, it was hard to get my mind around what to bring to you today because there are so many antithetical teachings going on both within the church and outside the church as it pertains to creation, but staying focused on anticipating the king, we're just going to focus on two, the uniqueness of humanity, the crown of creation made in the image of God, and number two, the role humanity is to play because of that uniqueness. First, let's consider the uniqueness of the crown of creation of humanity. Beloved, our psalm today was Psalm 8 and chosen really because of verse 5 and 6, but it's such a wonderful psalm. The psalmist was speaking to the Lord, saying of humanity, verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. The crown is a head adornment. Nice to have a head adornment when your head looks like mine. 
but it is worn by kings and queens as a symbol of their power and a symbol of their dignity. By extension, its glory and majesty represent the sovereign's domain and the sovereign's government. Perhaps the most valuable crayon that we are familiar with here in the West is the imperial state crown worn by the Queen of England. It is adorned here, listen here, with 2,901 precious jewels and is estimated to be worth 3.5 to 6 billion, 52 million, 495,000 dollars. And that's not with today's inflation. Those 2,901 stones are precious and extremely rare, which brings the crown a unique value. The crown will outlast the queen, will it not? And will be the next to pass on to the next sovereign, the next uh, king, the next queen who will be in a spot as a symbol of their glory, as a symbol of the nation, the dominion of the kingdom. The way God crowned Adam and Eve with glory and majesty was not with precious jewels and gold, but rather with his image and his likeness. His image and his likeness. What a precious thing, beloved, that humanity itself is crowned, the psalmist says, in the image and the likeness of God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. If we hop on down to verse 27, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. First, it is to be noted that mankind is the crown jewel of creation. Where every other creation starts with words, let there be... Adam's creation starts with, let us make man in our image. Should get our attention, right? Let there be light. Let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. These commands, right? And we know this from John chapter 1, that this voice that is coming from heaven is none other than Jesus Christ, who is the creator of all things, right? And he's saying, let there be. And it's almost as if there is a pause at the crown of creation and the Godhead, the Trinity, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit say, let us make man in our image. It should get our attention, shouldn't it? There are at least six exclamations for why the text uses the plural, let us, and in our image. The only answer that satisfies all the issues presented is that the plural personal pronoun, us and our, is the first hint of the doctrine that we would call the Trinity. There is absolutely no way that Moses or anyone would have picked up on that. They certainly may have asked the question, but as we look back now with the the revelation, the progressive revelation of Scripture, we can certainly understand that this is speaking of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit making this statement, let us, Make man in our image. It is not some new doctrine that showed up in the 300s AD, as so many people would say of the church, right? That the Trinity is just a a new doctrine. People were going and being burned at the stake, and tongues were being cut out uh, with this idea that, that God was three distinct personalities, yet one 
essence one, presence one person. Here it is in the first chapter, Genesis. One commentator noted that just like earthly kings would have statues created and placed at the borders of their domain, you might think of those sentinels that stood in Egypt and still stand today. They would create those and they would place them at the borders of the domain. God has created Adam and placed him over the domain of earth. Invaluable to be created in the image and likeness of God. And man, unlike all other creation, is created with similar attributes as the Godhead. Similar attributes. I... uh, If you know me very well or you're here on a weekday, especially in the last couple of weeks, you'll know that my my two-year-old Weimaraner pointing dog has been at my side and he has one of those giant cones on his head right now. And uh, as he has spent time with the staff this week and we have discussed uh, watching him and, and just noticing how all he is driven by is whatever he wants. It's just it, right? There's no conscience there. It's just, I'm hungry. I want to eat. I want to jump on you. I want to lick you. I want to play with you. I want to lay on your feet. I want to do whatever it is that I want to do. And as a matter of fact, we were noticing this week as, as he escaped my office. The reason he's in my office, listen, because he had a big surgery, right? And I got to keep an eye on him. It's, it's a hassle. But he gets out of my office. He's standing on the other side of our long set of offices over there. And I don't want him out there because people are coming in and out of the office. And then he runs off and the building's 50,000 square feet and I can't find him. I just go to each trash can location until I find him. He's always at one. Anyway, I tell him, trigger. Get back over here. And he looks at me and he has these golden eyes because he's Weimaraner. You can just see the expression on his face. And rather than come, he sits down. I don't want to come over there. It's not what I want to do. Man, unlike all of the creation is created, we have similar characteristics to that, don't we? But it's created uh, with the attributes of the Godhead. The word image is not so much a physical image because God is spirit. But Adam and Eve were created to be a moral creation. Trigger is not thinking about if this is a moral choice or not. He just doesn't want to come over. Man is able to make decisions. Man has an inner life, a consciousness of what is right and what is wrong. And that consciousness, as you well know, can be seared. It can, it can just like your hands, if you're working day in and day out with your hands, become calloused to where you cannot feel things. And, and God is forever wanting to rip that callous off our hearts by his Holy Spirit that we might have a heart of flesh and respond to him. In addition to be created in the image of God, man is also created in his likeness, although the two, image and likeness, are mostly synonymous. Likeness can speak of a man's uh, procreative ability. Alan Ross, in his commentary on Genesis, reflects on this well, saying, human life, male and female, 
thus has great capacity and responsibility by virtue of being the image of God. First, humans may produce life like God, right? Their own, who has spiritual and physical life. If humans are to imitate God, then creating life is a basic part of that task. A man and a woman can produce a living soul like God. This privilege is part of their blessing from God, a blessing that includes divine enablement. For believers, I love this statement. Childbirth is an act of worship. Not an act of biology. It's an act of worship. A sharing in the work of God, the one who created life. So it is, beloved, that the genuine Christian understands that the ability and privilege of recreating human life is not merely biological, but biology was created, it was given, it was instituted and ordained by God to represent God's attribute of creating a living soul. It is a privilege, as Alan Ross says, to to be in such a position crowned with glory that we could have a recreative ability to produce the crown of glory on earth. What a privilege. Not a weight, not a hassle, an act of worship. This is why real Christians will not debate abortion as a woman's right to health care, but rather see it as destroying and murdering the image of God on earth, the image that he, God himself, makes through biological means. God said in Psalm 103, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not ourselves. Who made us? He made us and not ourselves. He institutes biology. He creates the atom. He set it in place. He crowned us with glory. He gave us the ability to have intercourse and create a new life and a being. He did it. It's not some process of evolution. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Psalm 139.13 says, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And Job, speaking to the Lord in chapter 10, verse 11, of all his physical infirmities, says, Did you not clothe me in, with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? Speaking of the womb. Appalling to me to think that destroying a human life being created by God in the womb is being called health care or human rights. It is preposterous and stands in complete opposition to the purpose of humanity, whose very existence is to be the crown of God's glory and majesty on the earth. This is why Jesus comes to die for the sins of all of humanity. It's often spoken that in some theological circles anyway that 
that Christ's death is not enough for all of humanity. There is not enough atonement to pay, but only for the elect. And certainly we would understand that the efficaciousness of that atonement is going to apply to those who have believed, but, but it stands in opposition to the Scripture that Christ died for all. That Scripture we know so well that God so loved the world, and it's better probably to understand it this way, that God loved the world like this is the better grammar. He gave His Son to die that whoever, whoever, this wide-ranging atonement, whether you have created the worst atrocity of sin or you've lived a life that's fairly meek and no one would know of you, all of your sin has been paid for in the person of Jesus Christ and that we can turn to him immediately, efficaciously, and believe. All of human life is important. Christ died for all of human, human life, all of them. He died for you. So it is, beloved, no other created thing bears the image of God. No other created thing bears the image of God. Only humanity is crowned with God's image and glory. Where we have seen humanity as created in the image and likeness of God, now secondly, we turn our attention to the role which God created for uh, for humanity. Just like any earthly king has dominion, God, the ultimate king, gives Adam and Eve dominion or rulership over that which ultimately belongs to him. So it is humanity, before the fall of Adam, is expected to be a vice-regent over the realm of earth. Notice that the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to reference dominion or rulership nine times in three verses. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, And let them rule over, notice, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Skip down to verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and what? Subdue it, and rule over it, right? Rule the fish, rule over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Not only has God crowned uh, humanity with this crown of majesty and glory, He has given here in Genesis the role for which they are to operate. They are crowned. The dominion of the creation is to rule over the earth. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 8.6. You make him, that is mankind, to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Some of you are happy that it finally switched to under, right? So it is, beloved, that the Lord created man to rule and to reign with him like a king over the realm of earth. Like a king over the realm of earth. It's good for us to notice that humanity was not free in that ruling to do whatever they wanted. Look with me 
if you will. I'll have it up on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that the Lord God took the man. We can pause there for just a second and notice that he wasn't like Trigger, who said, nope, <laughs> I'm going to sit over here, right? The Lord is sovereign. He is God. He gave dominion to man, but it says, I'm going to take you, <laughs> and I'm going to do with you as I please. And he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, notice, and to keep it. I think sometimes we get this idea that that both uh, what was going on in the garden, or at least initially, and what will go on in a future time that we often, I think, wrongly call heaven. We're not going to spend eternity in heaven, beloved. I hope you've read the end of the book, right? We will spend our time worshiping and serving God on this earth and on a new earth, right? Not floating around like little babies with wings, right? Not shooting Cupid arrows. We'll be serving God, very similar to what we see here in Genesis chapter 1. We will be cultivating. We will be keeping. No doubt we will be working for serving the king. Notice that God placed Adam. One translation says this, And Yahweh God took the man and caused, I love that, and caused him to rest in the garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. Take care of it. You don't just sit around and throw your feet up and eat pizza and ice cream. We're going to cultivate the garden. We're going to keep it. Notice that God caused him to be in the garden, and he commanded him to serve it, to cultivate it, to keep it. Additionally, God would not leave them alone as he would reign with them as they ruled the realm of earth. We know from chapter 3 that God would show up in the garden and Adam and Eve immediately recognized, and it says there, this is so interesting to me, I'd love to dig into it a little bit more. They don't see him, but they recognize his sound. Remember that? They recognize his sound, the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And you and I can identify with that. I have a number of adults in my house, and each one of them has a unique personality. And when I hear Carol walking in the house, she, uh, she shuffles her feet a little bit, and so I don't have to wonder. I can have my eyes closed, and I can know, well, that, that's Carol coming. And if I hear something like a horse running around or, or moving around, I know you think that I think it's Trigger, but it's not. It's Matthew. He goes everywhere at Mach 5. His feet are heavy. It's always fast, and he's always going somewhere because he's always late. I can recognize his sound. And Tristan, he kind of lopes along. He has a pace, and I can just hear his feet kind of slowly. He's never on time either, but he's not nearly as concerned about it as Matthew. Tristan said, amen. They recognize the sound of the Lord in the garden. The sound. Everywhere in Scripture, I have no idea what this sound was, but it is certainly enough that they had their attention. They were fearful uh, because of what they had done, of course, and they are hiding, right? But this sound of the Lord, 
Can you imagine what that must be like? We turn to passages like Revelation, when the, it's like the sound of many waters rushing is the voice of the Lord. Can you imagine when he speaks to creation that maybe every leaf is shaking and in and, and and all of the air, like I spent some time in the military, and when you get around a large gun and you get a little too close to the muzzle, which I've unfortunately done more than once, and that's why I can't hear you when you talk to me, it takes the air out of the atmosphere. And I can imagine that, that the sound of the Lord, right, walking in the garden, Maybe it was like that. Maybe it was a still, small voice. We don't know. But what we do know is that Adam and Eve heard them, and God was with them. His presence was with them. He did not leave them. I'm going to bounce for just a second and cheat. You know that in chapter 3 that, that man is going to fall, and you know that there's a number of subsequent actions that happen, but you will know that when God delivers Israel out of Egypt, that he is with them. He sets himself up as king to be among them, with them, always to be in their presence. Behind, of course, the Holy of Holies, sitting on his throne, the Ark of the Covenant. But the design and the desire of God was to be with his people. We'll get into more of that in the weeks to come. Accompanied by the presence of God, the first human couple, one man and one woman, were to obey God. They were to cultivate the garden, rule over the whole earth, and in chapter 2, be joined together in marriage so that they could be fruitful and multiply, fulfilling that command, right, and fill the earth. Beloved, in short, before sin, humanity was crowned with glory to co-reign with God and exercise rulership over the earth. Now, I want you to bear with me for just a moment and and bear with the simplicity of this statement. In the first few pages of our Bibles, we see see humanity created to reign over the earth with God in our presence. So we go up there and we we literally turn one page. We're one page, (laughs) right? We're one page into Genesis here. And then you can turn all the way to the back to Revelation chapter 21, And we're going to see a restored creation and a restored people. And so just get this imagery in your mind. In one page, it describes what God was created for and what he will do and that he will rule and we will reign with him. And in the back cover, guess what? It says the same thing. He is going to recreate and we will rule and we will reign with him. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 6 The Apostle John records this, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard with a loud voice, does that sound familiar maybe? From the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is what? Among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Could it get any clearer? And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will uh, no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things 
have passed away, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Beloved, there's a couple pages that describe what God's purpose was and how we were designed to be. There's a ton of ink spilled in between because of sin. But just know this, in the end, those who know, love, and obey God will spend eternity with him in a similar way to that which was designed in the Garden of Eden. Beloved, it is the purpose of our series here titled Anticipating the King to show how our Bibles foresee the coming of a creator king who cohabitates with the saints to deal in righteousness and justice. We're going to see as we go through that not only is there an eternal state and we just read of how there will not be death and there will be no tears and there will, uh, there, there, there will be no presence of sin, and if you're very competent in your scriptures and you know well, you'll understand that there's multiplicity of prophecies both in the Old and the New Testament that speaks of another kingdom, a mediatorial kingdom, where there still is death, where there still is problems on the earth, but yet Messiah is ruling and reigning, and he is reigning with those who belong to him. We'll get into those texts. All the while, we see this constant or this consistent flow of God reigning with his creation and ruling over the earth. Are you excited to see that? I certainly am. We have seen today that the king of all creation, God crowned mankind with glory to rule over the realm of earth. Think about that. What a blessing. 